Well, how's it going, everybody? Well, we made it through Christmas, right? Yes, everyone's still alive. Some of you, there are some empty seats. I'm a little worried. And on to the new year. So you just get excited when you know God is speaking. And that, that's the beauty of the Bible is that it doesn't matter who's preaching it. doesn't matter who is proclaiming what they're reading. Every time that is cracked open and every time it goes forth, we're hearing from God. And that should be pretty darn exciting, right? All right. Now that we got through that awkward phase. How many of you guys know, quick pop quiz, how many know the, uh, the lyrics to Old Lang Syne? This is good because I was really hoping only maybe a few. Tim Raymer, you know just about everything, so I knew you were going to have your hands raised. Um, let's see if, if this helps you out at all. To my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> That's good. So everybody, you know the song that I'm talking about now, right? Most of you know it as the New Year's Eve song. It's the song that we sing while we either pop bottle champagne or we continue to keep Martinelli's apple cider in business for another year. So truthfully, though, there was a whole lot of you that didn't raise your hand. That means somebody needs to start brushing up on their 18th century Scottish poetry, okay? You have not spent nearly enough time uh, in the annuals of yesteryear. So there was a gentleman named Robert Burns, 1780, I think it was. He was a poet, and he penned this little musical ditty. Now, whether or not he knew that it was going to end up jumping ahead. Nope, we're not going to play that again. We're good. Okay, so whether or not he knew uh, that he was going, that this song would be used and utilized the way that it is today, that doesn't really matter. But what we know it as of this point is the official anthem of nostalgia. Right? I mean, this is a song that we sing specifically for us uh, at the end of the year, 12 o'clock. And this song, whether we know it or not, it's about remembering the year past. The failures, the shortcomings, the things that made it, the things that did not. Old friends that maybe aren't friends anymore. Lovers that may never have passed the test. Business ventures that failed, some that went well. It was remembering, recalling the events from the previous year. But we use it a little bit differently. See, we kind of stand on the edge of the brink of what I would like to refer to as kind of the great unknown for the next 365 days. When the new year comes and we sing that song, looking backwards at the previous year, we, if, whether we know it or not, we, we look at things like this, whether they were good or bad, what is past is past, but what has now just been unveiled to us at the strike of midnight is a 365-day, wide-open, fresh start, endless opportunity, ability to do all of the things that maybe we ventured to do last year and were never accomplished. This thing that I worked so hard on the last six months, growing it and making it look beautiful, I now have 365 days to not gross my wife out. Like, there's just this huge opportunity, and it's endless. We're not bound by anything. It's just bright and clear. And the thing is, is that I've always been that way. I am the king of New Year's resolutions. I, the, the more unrealistic and absolutely never going to be attained, the better. I, I just find great humor in that. And I always love to just shout it from the mountaintops, all the huge things that I'm going to do in the next year, knowing I'm not, it's never going to leave here, like ever. But this struck me. I was reading John chapter 9, the, uh, I guess two weeks ago or something like that, and it, this just stuck out. Stuck out. Stuck out. Uh, it's verses 4 and 5. I'm going to read it for you. As long, and this is Jesus speaking, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. For night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So in a nutshell, Jesus is placing this incredible sense of urgency on the immediate, on the right now. We may not have another year. Jesus is saying, I may not have another day. There may not be time for us to 
do what we intend to do. There may not be 365 more days. We must do what God is doing right now while we can. Because soon and very soon, we won't be able to do any of it. We need to seize, seize every moment and take on every obstacle. So it is with this, the spirit of this, so to speak, that I'm going to venture to do something that I haven't done before. And my first prayer is that in 2013, we collectively as a church might adopt or reinforce a few resolutions of our own. Though I don't want them to be these passive resolutions that are all in good thinking, that great wisdom, yeah, it would be wonderful if we could do that. I, I don't want it to be merely in speech. I want us to take this in. I want this to be permanent resolutions, life-changing things that become concrete, that we don't throw away, you know, 24 hours later. I do not want it to be the proverbial gym membership that you sign up and start paying for 12 months later still haven't gone. I don't want it to be that. So it's with that that I say this. Each new year presents less time, not more. Now let that sink in for a minute. Each new year presents less time, not more. We understand as Christians that one of two things are happening. Either we die and meet Jesus or he has an imminent return to the earth. And every year, instead of having a wide open calendar of 365 beautiful days, knowing it will continue the next year, we don't know that. And we eagerly ought not to look at it that way. Rather, we should hope with all of our heart that it happens soon and very soon. We have less time every year, not more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, it's going to take a sincere amount of life change and engagement to view day-to-day like this. Uh, We're Americans, and we have a tendency in our beautiful freedom to look at every opportunity as just an indescribable moment where we can do and think and dream and believe and, and move and plan and all of these things because we will live forever. And that just may not be the case. You have called us to this life to be something, to do something, to change something drastically. You've called us to a redeeming story, a big picture. You've drawn us into works from before the foundation of the earth that we would walk in them, that we would be a public display of the goodness of the gospel. And you have laid a premise that this is a sense of urgency, that the time is short and the stakes are high. So, Father, as we go through your word this morning, as we seek to hear from you, Spirit of God, make alive this text in our hearts. Apply everything to our hearts and to our minds that our thinking would be different. And as a result, our actions would follow suit. May we glorify Jesus' name this morning and affect the world as a result. Amen. So here's what I'm attempting to do today. And I tried to tell myself a few weeks back that I wasn't going to do this, but it failed and I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to give you five permanent resolutions. I mean this, five permanent resolutions. If you're the type to take notes, this is where you want to take them. So I want you to think about this this year. Every time I want you to open your scripture, I want you to look at these and say, you know what? I resolve to be this way. I resolve to think like this. I resolve to put these into action. I'm not going to let it go 12 months without being changed by this. Five permanent resolutions. Resolution number one. The busyness of life will not constrict my involvement in ministry. The busyness of life will not constrict my involvement in ministry. Let me give you a disclaimer really quick. I'm a husband. I have two beautiful kids, one nine, one slightly over two, going on 20. And they take up an unbelievable amount of my time. I have a job where where God has graciously allowed me to be a part of your lives and more importantly and more specifically, I guess, your children's lives, being a partner with you in their development and in the role of training, that takes an amazing amount of time. And so when it comes down to seeking out evangelistic endeavors or the needs in my community that need to be attested to or witnessed in front of, it is really easy for me and I'm sure for you to say, you know what? 
I, I love Jesus and I love people and I want people to come to the Lord, but I just don't have time to spend the adequate time it takes to make disciples. I just, I just don't have time to go up to the homeless guy and offer to take him out to lunch. It's just easier to throw him a dollar. Like I don't have time to invest in knowing my neighbors. I don't have time to help Joe Schmo fix his car. I don't have time to do these things. Life is just too busy. Well, you know what? Let's resolve that. Let's make a resolution, a permanent resolution, and I'm going to give you a reason why in a second, that the busyness of life will not constrict our involvement in God's redeeming story, his ministry. Here's why. Verse 1 out of chapter 9. Now, this is before you jump all over me and go, wow, this seems really out of context, not really Jordan's style. Let's just read verse 1. As he went, speaking of Jesus, along he saw a man blind from birth. Now, I need to take a moment and give you a story in order for this to make sense. But note, this is what he runs into. So when you start in chapter 7 of John, you get, you get Jesus and his disciples making their way back to Jerusalem for one of many feasts or religious holidays that the Jews celebrated. This happened to be uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, whichever your translation says. Um, I'm not going to go a great deal into what that is. Just know it's a heightened religious holiday and worthy of a pilgrimage. So families, it is a hustling and bustling city more so now than it was before. And Jesus is already kind of a popular figure. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how many disciples with him. We can rest assured we at least know 12, but upwards and potentially anywhere between that 12 and 150 potentially followed him into Jerusalem. He might have had a rather large entourage, which we know Jesus as Savior, but we should also recognize Jesus as administrator. Jesus was a leader of a movement, of a community. As a rabbi, he had students. So if you want to talk about the busyness of life, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, we're talking about a lot of mouths to be concerned about where and how they're going to be there, sleep there, eat while they're there, how Jesus is going to get to the temple and teach. And if you continue to go on through verse 8, I'm sorry, through chapter 8, there's some very interesting things that take place. Jesus, while in his stay, saves a uh, potential prostitute uh, from being stoned to death which made the Jews, Pharisees, etc., a little upset with him. So it only heightened the aggravation with Jesus' presence. He then goes on to, at the end of chapter 8, into the temple, begins teaching, and he says, probably some of the most hard and true uh, and condemning statements in the whole book. He refers to himself more so as God in this chapter, I think, than just about anywhere placing himself above Abraham, placing himself above Moses, referring to himself as I am. And what we know to end up happening right at the end of chapter 8 is that he is chased out of the temple with a group of individuals, a mob, if you will, with stones in hand attempting to kill him. If there is anyone that is busy with his life, it was Jesus. Jesus was not passively just looking for things to do to fill his day. He was very busy. He was literally ducking and hiding around every corner because it was not yet his time. There was things happening. People were seeking his head. He had teaching engagements, people to care for. He was about as busy as they get. And yet as soon as chapter 8 finishes him with him running out of the temple courts, it picks up right here. As he went along, he sees a man blind from birth. Although Jesus' life had become extremely complicated, they were seeking his death, the busyness of their stay in Jerusalem. Jesus still found that the service of those in need was of increased importance to him. He sees someone in need and he stops. His life is rerouted and redirected momentarily because of the need of this individual. You're going to find out a little bit more here in a second about this individual and the role that he plays in this story. But for now, let's think about this for a second. We have a million and one ways and reasons for which we can fill up a calendar. I mean, we can, we can get busy on anything. We can make up things to obligate ourselves in time. It's not a difficult thing. But we have to balance out ultimately what is of most importance. We have to an answer the question, why in fact are we here? 
Why did Christ save us? Yes, obviously, because he loves us. But why? Why did he fill us with his spirit? Why did he give us commissions to go? Why do we have a heart for broken and hurting people? Why do we look at the need in our community and want to do something about it? Because we were made for it. And if that is supremely important, then we must resolve as Christians, we must resolve as Bethel Christian Church, that we will not allow the busyness of our lives to completely constrict and cut us off in our involvement in Christ's story and ministry. Number two, I will act more frequently and judge much less. I will act more frequently and judge much less. These seem like no-brainers, by the way, but sad thing is I'm saying this because we're all insanely guilty of them. I will act more frequently and judge much less. Picking up in verse 2, his disciples then asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man, speaking of the blind guy sitting down on the ground, or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus responds, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. So let's give, let's give the disciples a little bit of credit. I have a tendency to beat up on these guys often because we, we, we're looking at this post-Holy Spirit. We're looking at these fumbling, bumbling sinners doing things that they ought not to be doing. And we get a little ashamed. We got to realize there was so much they just didn't know. Not that we are any better by any means. But let's just take a look at what's going on. We know it's about, yeah, it's in the middle of Sabbath. They're restricted from doing anything to serve this guy right now. So as far as they're concerned, they're keeping up with the religious Jones. They're doing what they are supposed to be doing. They're being good Jewish religious boys. They're not extending a finger or putting out any work on the Sabbath. We are really good at finding reasons not to do stuff. I'll give you an example that is personal for me. It actually really hurts and bothers me all the time. We have a massive homeless issue in San Francisco. That's no surprise to anybody, especially here in the mission. Massive issue. And we have a tendency to do which I think is less abrasive and easiest. We like to throw money. And throwing money is a really simple way of saying, I've done my duty without doing my duty because I don't have the time because potentially I'm too busy. But even worse, is he going to use it for food? Is he going to get drunk? Is he going to go smoke an eight ball? I mean, there's all of these implications for where my dollar goes. So we're constricted in doing anything. We're held back. So it's much easier for us to now sit back and calculate and say, I mean, should I help him? I mean, he could help himself, right? I mean, if he just got up and went and got a job, then all this would be fine. So, so what do we do? And this is more or less the wrestling match that the disciples are making right now. They're saying, okay, I'm not even really supposed to help him right now anyway. So let's just look at his pity and begin to ask ourselves how he got in this mess. Was he a big sinner from birth? Or were his parents really foul? I mean, how does somebody get a plague like this, Lord? And I love, I love Jesus' involvement here because he's really interested in the guy. Like, Jesus is really close to the guy right now. He's stopped. He's noticed him. His attention is drawn to him. His focus is arrested. He is on this guy, and he's listening to his disciples saying from a distance, how did he get in that spot? That's a, that sucks. That is a real bummer right there. I feel really bad for him. I'm not going to do anything about it, but just really curious. And Jesus says, no, he's in this state now. So that the works that you and I, for as long as we are here, to walk in will be done in his life. We're here for him. Don't you get that? It doesn't matter how he got it. What matters is that he has it and you're here for him. You are here for him. Jesus is saying, look, stop talking about it so much. Who cares how he got it? The fact is he has it. Now what are you going to do about it? 
We're here for as long as we are here to do these things that bring glory to God and benefit those who are in need the most. I will act more frequently and judge much less. I'll just share this verse because I love it. Ephesians 2.10. We are the Christian, the, the new transformed individual, are God's workmanship, his craftsmanship, the beauty of his hand. And we were created for good works. We were created for these things, the resolution of the great need in our society and world, ministry, redemptive story, whatever you want to call it, being missional. We were created to walk in such a way. This is how it was made and created before the foundations of the earth. I love this quote here. It is his will not only that we should do them, but continue to do them. Not only that they would be done one single time, but they would be walked out eternally. Their conversation and course of life should be as such that is a continued series of good works, never ending flowing from their being. And we are not in any way saved by them, but they are in every way the fruit of a transformed life. I love that. Everything we do, everything we do should be poured out in good works to the benevolency of someone else. Everything. And we have a tendency to spend all too much time pontificating the who, what, how, when, and why. Just put your hands in the dirt. Number three. A lack of resources and ability will not keep me from acting. A lack of resources and ability will not keep me from acting. Now, how many of you have looked at whatever need out there or looked at a ministry, say, within the context of the church and said, I'm just not sure if, if I can do that. You know, let's say somebody came up to you and said, you know, you're a really nice guy. You're, you're incredibly kind, you're outgoing, you're an extrovert, you shake hands when there's new people, you look people in their eyes, I think you would make a great greeter. And your response is, oh, I mean, I, I don't know, I, I get kind of nervous around people actually, and, and to be honest, I don't like people very much, I really only do it on Sundays, so, you know, I just, I don't know, I don't, I don't feel called or gifted, those are my favorite, I hate it when people say that. I don't feel called or gifted. I don't, I don't feel like I have the ability to do this. Or let's, let's make a bigger scale. Let's, let's say we have a massive prostitution issue in our area. Let's just pretend like that's a reality out here. Well, I don't know how to do anything about that. I mean, where do I even begin? How can I reach such a lost person? How can I be involved? How can I step into that situation? How can I speak into their lives? I don't know what it means to have that kind of need. I don't know what it means to be that kind of a drug user or that kind of a slave to that kind of torment. I have no idea how to do it. A lack of resources and ability will not keep us from acting. Now this text and how this works together may seem bizarre to you here in a second, but just bear with me. Picking up in verse 6, having said this, Jesus to them about how it was, his situation was being utilized so that the works of God may be performed. Having said this, he spits on the ground, makes some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Kind of gross. If you have kids, you know what that's like. Go, he told him, and now wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, if there's anything that we know about Jesus is that he didn't necessarily need to do all of this. I mean, Jesus is pretty good at just saying things and things just happening. And he didn't necessarily need to get his hands down in the mud. He didn't need to spit into some dust to make a really bad smelling paste and put it on the guy's eyes. He didn't need to get down in his world. He didn't need to stoop. He didn't need to dirty up his knees. He didn't need to potentially smell the... the the beautiful aroma that possibly was coming off this homeless man. He didn't, he didn't need to do any of that. We have so many examples where people say, Jesus, if you just give me the word, I know it'll be done. So what is it about the incarnation of Jesus that makes this so true? See, Christ 
wasn't just a beautiful, powerful, unbelievably successful sacrifice for sin. It wasn't just that. There was more going on. Jesus came as a human being, birthed out of a woman through blood and water, came about hungry, crying, needing oxygen to survive. He came in a low physical state. He lived as it is coined often, a perfect, sinless life. Now, what is the key and importance to that? What is it that we take from a perfect, sinless life? What is it that we learn by Jesus' human example? find this really interesting, found in John 5. From Jesus' mouth, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father already doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So what Jesus displays really rather well is a life, a human life, that is completely, perfectly submissive in every way to God, trusting in him, depending on him, thinking, being concerned with seeking his will, desiring to know what he's about so that we might do what he is in fact doing. When I say, A lack of resource and ability will not keep me from acting. What I'm saying is the model of Jesus Christ was for us to be so dependent on God, so completely submissive to his will, seeking hard after the things that he is about and doing in our community and in our society, that it didn't matter what kind of obstacle rose. It didn't matter how incredibly far out it was or out of our range and ability to do. It didn't matter if we didn't have enough money. It didn't matter if we didn't have enough people and volunteers. It didn't matter if we didn't have enough knowledge or understanding or perception to get involved in that. It didn't matter if we didn't learn it well enough. It didn't matter if we didn't all go to seminary. We would trust God in every step, walking by faith, in every way, knowing that God would do exactly what he intends to do. This is what Jesus shows in his life. I love this quote. Any great work able to be accomplished purely on our own means is no ministry at all. Let that sink in. Anything that we do, that we can do without God, that we can do with these hands, is not ministry. It is not supernatural Rather, the things that God calls us to, painful or not, that require much of him to accomplish, those are the things in which we are being called to in these good works. We are called to be incredibly dependent. Let us resolve that no lack or inability on our part will keep us from moving forward and redeeming and working through areas that need it. Number four, I will be faithful in the small things. I will be faithful in the small things. So what's interesting about Christian ministry and having, you know, been a part of a church uh, vocationally twice now and spending at least a little bit of time getting to know the ins and outs is that I am a victim of wanting to do only things that are most successful. I only want to do the things that I can see have the greatest impact. Like if I can vision hundreds of thousands of people coming to Jesus as a result, that's the thing I want to pour my resources into. That's where my attention draws. And you know, truthfully, I got to admit, we're no different. I can't tell you how often I have a conversation with, let's say, a student who says, ah, Jordan, there's this friend of mine and I really love him to pieces, but he just, ah, he's so in the world and he just doesn't know this is killing him. He doesn't know how much he needs Christ. I'm like, well, have you, have you shared the gospel at all with him? Have you, have you prayed with him? Have you, have you asked him any questions? Have you engaged him? Have you invited him? Have you done any of these things? And the response is, oh, no, no, no. I mean, you don't even know this guy. I mean, there, there's no hope for this guy. Like, I mean, he's not going to come to church. He, he's not going to hear me when I tell him about Jesus. Like, he probably would definitely not let me pray for him. I mean, he is so far over there that there's no getting him back. And we, I watch them cower in fear to the extent that if I can't see it as being possible, 
If I can't see the redemptive quality, if I can't see the value of the time to be poured into it, if I don't know he's going to come to our youth group tomorrow, give his life to Jesus, and then start playing on the worship team within a week, I don't know that it's worth it. Can we just agree that that's that's sad? And I'm not pointing any fingers. I mean, believe me, I have a lifelong story of that. I grew up in an unchurched family, saved by God's grace. The rest of my family, not involved in that. Who should I have had more of an open door with? Who should I have been least afraid to talk to? My mom? My brother? I know these people. There's no dancing around the things that I don't know about them. I know everything about them. I know every stupid thing my brother did, and I know everything my mom tries to hide from me. I knew everything. But yet I thought there was no way, no way Jesus can save them. So I never moved. Couldn't see the value, so I didn't do anything about it. The small things are unbelievably important and the most overlooked. Everybody wants to preach when 500 people are coming. Nobody wants to talk about Jesus when it's just you and somebody else. I want to share a really cool story. Uh, First, I'll just say this. Feeding of the 5,000. I could just end it with that. Jesus like, uh, we have no food? Uh, No, seriously, what do we have? Oh, there's a little boy with a snack. Grab that. Come here. He takes nothing, and we know the story, multiplies it into more than enough and then some. Jesus is not without the ability. And the small things are important. Often the small things feed the big things. There's a gentleman named Edward Kimball. Couldn't tell you the date. Years ago. Edward Kimball was just a Sunday school teacher. Which, let me just tell you, Sunday school teachers are awesome, and you guys do not get nearly enough credit. So when I say just a Sunday school teacher, don't take that where it's probably going. He's a Sunday school teacher. Had no title. Wasn't paid a salary at the church. Purely volunteer. Just taught kids. And one day, walking about uh, downtown Boston, actually, looking for, um, I'm sorry, on his way to church. He goes by and there is this bright, uh, attractive, loud, outspoken, vivacious young man who worked at a shoe or boot sales uh, outlet. And this kid was so interested and so engaged and wanted to make money and make something of himself. He was so outward that he would come out of the store onto the street and he would wait for people to walk by. And when he saw how scuffed up and bad their shoes were, he would begin to walk with them and basically tear their clothing down and just be like, wow, you, you really shouldn't go outside like that. I mean, those are, those are awful looking shoes. You really should get some new, you need to come inside and take a look at her shoes. And he would just, he was an unbelievable salesman and had massive success. And Edward Kimball would go by this young man constantly. And he just kind of chuckled to himself and was like, ah, that's a bright, neat little kid. But he just, it's a little kid. Who cares? I mean, it's one little kid. He'd pass him by. Every day, pass him by. Every day, pass him by. And finally, it just weighed on him one day. And was like, you know what? I need, to be, I need to be concerned about him. I see him every day. God must be doing something. I should be concerned. And he finally goes and follows this little boy into the store. Uh, he goes all the way to the back. And he taps the little kid on the, on the shoulder. And he says, look, I don't want to talk to you about shoes whatsoever. I just feel like I really need to share something with you. Would you give me a moment and let me do that? And the story, as it is said, is that he shares a very broken, very dis, you know, just strange gospel message. It wasn't great. It wasn't one of those bright, shining moments where he just nails all of his points. It was really disjointed, but he just, he just shared the little that he could in that brief moment with him about the gospel. Long story short, after more engagement, that young man gets saved. We later come to find out that this was, um, and you probably know his name, Dwight Moody. Um, and if you don't, uh, he has a very, <coughs> he's a very big, uh, Bible college seminary, trains 
thousands and thousands of pastors and missionaries all over the world. But if we wanted to make this story more interesting, watch this. D.L. Moody is also not quite as famously known for going to England with a gentleman named F.B. Meyer and literally reshaping the way that evangelism and street evangelism was utilized and looked at in London, England. That gentleman, F.B. Meyer, then had interactions when it came to evangelism with a gentleman named Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was touched and moved quite a bit by this gentleman, which also D.L. Moody led to him becoming a believer and then as a result, as we know, having the massive effect in American evangelism. So one little boy, the small thing, the unimportant thing, sitting in front of a shop, leads to what we can now accredit millions and millions worldwide following Jesus, submitting their worship to him as glorified Lord, and literally changing the shape of Protestant Christianity as we know it. The little things are incredibly important. Do not mistake that. Your neighbors, your kids' teachers, the guy you buy oranges from down the street, whatever, The little, seemingly insignificant, are the things that this year let us resolve to be faithful in. And lastly, oh, whoops, I forgot to read the text for that. All right, my bad. Let's do this. Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging him asked him, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said, no, he only looks like him, but he himself insisted... I'm the man. How then were your eyes open? They asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked. I don't know, he said. So what we're talking about is one insignificant little beggar, blind from birth, not participating in a society, not contributing to work, not building up his community, forgotten. He's the guy that gets swept to the side. Jesus takes a moment, heals this man. His whole community is in an uproar now. Curiously seeking for the miracle worker who has the ability to bring sight to the blind. The small and insignificant lead to the big things. Let's be faithful with them. And now lastly, resolution number five. And far the most important. In everything... I will be gospel-centered in everything, everything. I will be gospel-centered. Let's read the text first. Now, it skips quite a bit. There's a whole lot of the story that I left out, and I'll catch up with you here in a minute. Um, But picking up in 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now this man that we're talking about is the beggar who once had blind eyes but now can see. What we missed in the story is that there was a, I don't know, 12 verses where the town and community was just in an uproar that they had seen this guy who was once blind and begging is now walking about talking about all the things that he sees. Nobody can do that. So they want to find this Jesus. They want to find the guy that did it. And so they take him. They said, if if anyone knows where a guy like this would be, it's got to be the Pharisees. So they grab him and they take him to the Pharisees and they say, look, this guy, blind from birth, not blind now. Somebody did it. Help us out. And you see this unraveling, this really gross depiction. And and I was going to include it in the sermon. It just would have screwed us up time-wise. But you see this massive upheaval. God doing a great work and us scrutinizing it to death. They broke it apart. Well, if it happened on the Sabbath, then it couldn't have been from God. And if it happened on the Sabbath, then the man doing it certainly can't even be a prophet. So who was the sinner? They go right back to the disciples' argument. Who was the sinner then? Was it this man or was it his parents? Bring his parents. So then his parents show up. And his parents say, uh, we're not getting in this fight. Yep. Blind from birth. See you later. And it's this long dialogue of the Pharisees wanting to come to a a controlling conclusion that Jesus could not possibly be God 
because he broke the law. He claimed to be something that he can't be. He makes little of our practices and he does not do things the way that we would do them. So what they end up doing is they take the man and they just cast him out. What's really beautiful is he ends up being a total smart aleck at the end and getting him really irritated, which sounds like something I would do too. And they end up just getting irritated and casting him out. And this is where it picks up here. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And he goes and he, he goes and he seeks to find him. And then once he finds him, he calls him to himself. See, it's really, really, imp- ah, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll go here in just a second. Let's talk about gospel-centered, okay? Because we're using a buzzword catchphrase that's about as popular as the term missional that's only about a year old. But Christians tend to use these things and throw them around without really getting to what they mean. And gospel-centered seems pretty straight-focused. So let's ask ourselves, what's the gospel? My favorite, John three seventeen: For God did not send us into the world to condemn it, but he sent him to save it. Pretty gospel-oriented. He could have, should have judged us, cast us out, but didn't. Instead, came to love us, pursue us, keep us, and bring us to himself as the greatest prize we will ever have. Pretty awesome. Gospel-centered, I believe, is this. That everything that we do points to this. Everything that we say comes to this. If you want to meet people for Jesus, awesome. Go shake hands, get to know names, build relationship and rapport. But all of that comes to this. You want to pass out tracks, though I usually strongly am against it. Go ahead and do that, but just hope to God the track you're passing out or the conversation that ensues points to this. You want to feed the homeless? Please do it. But make sure that once they're done eating, you bring them to a place where it points to this. A gospel-centered life means everything, verbal or action, is pointing at Jesus, not coming to condemn, but coming to save. The good news, everything comes to this. Last thing I'll say about this real quick. What I love about these verses, he could have just left. I mean, he healed the guy's eyes. What more does he owe him? He could have just done a miracle, sent him on his way, walked out, moved on to the next thing. But Jesus was insanely interested in this above all things. This is why he, while being chased away, while his life being required of him, while the busyness of the season had gotten over him and taken him, while the requests of all the individuals around him, while the popularity about him ensued, while his disciples sat and judged rightly how or what or when, this is what drew Jesus to stop and stoop down to this man's level. It's that he wanted to get to a point where he could see him and say, do you trust me? Do you believe in the Messiah and that I am he? And it's a great ending to the story when it says, yeah, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So I'll end this way. In conclusion, there's five things. Hopefully you wrote them down. Hopefully they're ruminating. Consider this. Think about it. Marinate on it. Let it weigh heavy on your heart and conscience. Because you could walk away from this and say, okay, great. Five revolutions. What do these really have to do with anything? Like, what is, we get it. We understand it. This is basic 101. What does this have to do with my life right now? How does this work in the big picture? How do we know that these are valid? How do we know that this is biblical? I'll quickly run through all five of them really fast again. The busyness of life will not constrict my involvement in ministry. Jesus never got too busy for us. Basic. He was not too distracted or disinterested to come after you. If you sit in this room tonight and you've experienced the loving grace of God, you call yourself a believer based on now having faith that he gave you as a gift. If you believe and see and love and savor Jesus, it's because he was not too busy for you. He came after you. He wanted you. Number two. Probably should know these by now. 
I will act more frequently and judge much less. We already read John 3, 17. He didn't come to condemn or judge, but he came to save. He came with action in mind. Jesus spoke pretty frequently throughout his life about how it is not yet my time. Wait, guys, I am soon going to the cross. I won't be here with you forever. These conversational points seek to paint a big picture for I'm here to do an act that will set you free and save you forever because I love you. I came to save you. I did not come to condemn you. So we likewise must really reel back on the judgment and move forward in an action of love. Number three, a lack of resource and ability will not keep me from acting. Jesus said himself, I can't do anything on my own. Everything I do, I do because I've seen it already being done by my father. I trust him. I know him. I know what he's doing. I know what he's about. Likewise for us. If Jesus was doing what the Father had called and commanded him to do, and it was for our best interest, likewise, as Christians who follow the model of Jesus, we are too. No matter if we have the abilities seen or foreseen, we are to trust God and we are to seek and pour ourselves out, doing things that we should not, could not, don't have the ability to do. No one in this room has the ability to shape evangelism, and the evangelical church worldwide getting millions of people saved. None of you have the ability any more than D.L. Moody did. As a young man, God will do exactly what he intends to do. Your ability and resource are not the deciding factor. Fourth, I'll be faithful in the small things. You are a small, insignificant, but beautiful part of God's story. You are not as big as he is. You are not as important as Jesus is. The creation itself is a massive, beautiful, wonderful work. And he has chose to love people in an amazing way that he shouldn't. But we're not the biggest thing in the world. God is. But he did not neglect the small and insignificant. He did not forget about us. He did not leave us in despair and he did not leave us to death. And lastly, And everything Jesus was gospel-centered is gospel-centered. Everything he did, he did it pointing to the cross. Everything was moving that way. Even his physical steps around Samaria and Judea and Jerusalem, it was all coming back to Jerusalem to die. Everything he did was focused on being raised upon a cross, dying a sinner's death, taking upon himself the curse of the world, that our disposition could be different. Everything Jesus did was gospel-centered. So are these five resolutions important? Is the model of Christ important? When we ask ourselves who we are to the world, it's not based upon us or what we have, our resources, our abilities, our thought process, our ability to judge whether we were right or wrong. It's based on this. Are we saved and redeemed? Are we called according to God's purpose in Christ Jesus to walk out continually good works that he prepared beforehand. If that is true, then let us go into 2013 with at least five resolutions that never change, that do not waver, that will be the same five resolutions in 2014, the same in 2015, that they will not be things that we wait to change six months into the year or before the last six weeks when we're worried that we're not going to meet our deadline, but that these would take root in our heart and change our whole outlook in life. Uh, It's at this moment I would uh, like to invite the deacons down. All this talk about gospel-centeredness, this talk about Jesus, this talk about why we're here, how we're here, the means by which this takes place, it draws us back to a picture of what happened on the cross. Something very special, something he'll never do again, something that lasts for us permanently and forever. And as a church, as believers in Jesus, we gather to celebrate in remembrance of such a thing. And that we recall this last supper, so to speak, where Jesus met with those that he loved. And he shared a meal with them. And in intimacy began to unveil and and share his love for them, his passion for them, his reason that he hunted them down. And that the great end result was what was going to be accomplished on the cross. He described his body and his blood as being atoning sacrificial offerings. And that one would be broken and the other would be poured out. And as he wrapped 
I'm sorry, as he passed bread around the table and tore pieces and had his friends in fellowship share in those things. He said to always remember when you share in this meal what these are going to mean for you. So I'm going to say two things on that. If you are here, and maybe this is your first time, let's say you aren't a believer in Jesus, uh, we're not mean, but we're just going to let you know this isn't a snack. So it's okay to let it go. It's going to come down the aisle way next to you. You do not have to necessarily grab one and take it. But my encouragement to you this morning is that if you don't take it, please don't leave here without asking us why. Now second, if you're a believer, and let's say you have some thing going on within you, let's say you have got some issues with your brother or your sister or your family or maybe even someone else in this room, I'm going to encourage you to hold off and make amends with that person before. I don't want to sound religious or strict, but I never want to belittle what it is we're doing here. We're remembering the greatest thing that's ever happened to us or will ever happen in the future. God calling, men coming, us being saved and redeemed. Let's pray and we'll go ahead and pass these around. Father, you're great. Your word is true. You are a lover of people, the worst of us. You took upon yourself the greatest cost. It didn't cost us anything for Jesus to come to the cross, but it cost you everything. Word says that you were pleased to bruise and crush your son because you knew what was going to be accomplished. You would gather much more to yourself. Those that would believe would be reconciled. This makes the gospel amazing and powerful. And so when these elements pass around, Father, let us not be quick to throw down a cracker, drop back a little bit of juice. Let us savor the moment. Let us recall and remember the point in which we first saw Jesus as beautiful and we're remembering always the sacrifice of blood and broken body that was poured out for our sin, that we could be your children called friends. In Jesus' name, amen.
sat down with his disciples, he took the bread and he took the wine and he lifted it up and gave thanks to the Father. As he passed the bread around, he asked that we would remember every time we took this, the broken body of our beloved Savior, the bread of life. Likewise, he took the cup, blessed it, passed it, said, this is my blood that's poured out for the sins of many. The blood of Christ that brings us new life. Take a drink. always think of interesting little tidbits to close with. Bill is a master at that, so you'll get more of that next week. But um, I will say this. Um, first and foremost, I'm glad that all of you that are here are here. Uh, not because you get to hear me preach, but because I know that God's word is powerful and it's able to change. And the Holy Spirit is quick to bring to remembrance all that Jesus said, to make known to us the mysteries of God. So it's a joyous, wonderful thing for us to hear this, especially on the, on the springboard or catalyst of a new year. We look at all of our opportunities because, hey, we don't know when. But I pray that we would take to heart the sense of urgency that Jesus gave and that not knowing when doesn't mean it's forever. Not knowing when means it may be very soon. So believe deeply when I say these things, that we must do and be working the things that God has prepared beforehand for those that are his children to walk in daily. Let us be changed by them. Let us be purveyors of them. Let's have communities and cities that look like they are redeemed, that are in fact redeemed. Do we not want the world to reserve their worship for Jesus? I know we do. So two things to say. If God is speaking to you this morning and, and you're not totally sure how to wrestle through that on your own, hey, welcome to the club. But we want to invite our, our, our prayer counselors down here. And if you need to be prayed for anything, 
I mean, literally anything. I'm not going to throw out things, but it can be anything. I want you to feel comfortable. No one's going to look at you. No one's going to make you feel bad. I want you to feel comfortable to come down. You're going to be wrapped around people that sincerely, even without knowing you well, love you and care about you, want your best. So take some time. Don't feel rushed. You don't got to get out of here in a hurry, but make your way down here and we'll pray for you. Also, if maybe you've been checking out Bethel uh, for a while and you just want to get to know us better, maybe somehow I was able to sell myself this morning. I'm just kidding. We have the living room that's back there, and that's just a place for you to sit down, ask the questions you may have about us as a church and a community, uh, and what we're doing here in the city, and what we're about, and how maybe you can get involved. Um, we would love to hear from you, and we'd love to, for you to take 10 or 15 minutes back there. We love you guys. I'm telling you from, from this pastor and all the rest of our pastors, we love you deeply. And we want God's best for you, and we want God's best for the world. We have an amazing city out there. Go and be a part of its transformation. Dream really big. And in 2013, let the work that God has set forth in our heart be that which we do every day, in every way, without excuse, for no other reason than this, because we love him and we love his people. We love you guys. Have a great week.